Okay, let's start the recording. Uh, my name is Kurt I'm an associate professor of economic and finance here. Um, today we're talking about the Vanguard initiative, uh, which is we have recently received Vanguard funds in our TIA CREF accounts. Um, I think sessions like this, especially if they're this small, which is great, is really good for a lot of personal questions on how things work. Um, so I'll give a little bit of background. Um, I have been passionate about personal finance for a very long time. Um, I do a little bit of research in personal finance, but most of my personal finance stuff is reading the literature and then helping my friends do it. Um, um, I, again, I, I do some research in finance as well, but the personal finance stuff is just a, a personal value to me. Um, and a few years ago, I was talking to Marianne Lloyd about Vanguard funds and why we didn't have Vanguard funds, and she had mentioned, oh, no, there's a Compensation Welfare Committee, and they've been working on this issue. Why don't you go join them? And I said, okay. So I joined the Compensation and Welfare Committee. Um, I got nominated, put in charge of the Vanguard initiative, <laughs> told I was doing the Vanguard, <laughs> told I was doing the Vanguard initiative, um, and... As no one on the committee could do math. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I spent some time meeting with different people on campus and some of the off-campus consultants on why I think this is a good idea and why we should do it. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time at the Compensation and Welfare Committee pushing this. There were a lot of moving balls and moving parts that had to go and eventually it was implemented. And as of last fall, which I think it was in November, uh, was about the time where the Vanguard funds have opened up. Um, and now we have Vanguard index funds in our account. Um, I looked this morning, we saw the same three that we had uh, from that start, which is uh, basically an S&P 500 index, an international index, and then a small cap index. Um, the reason that I was so passionate about this project was the differences in expense ratios. Right? So the idea here is that within the investment world and within these funds, there are active funds and passive funds. Um, active funds mean you're paying a manager to actively manage the account and buy and sell certain stocks to, to make you best off. And passive funds say you're basically buying a whole portfolio of something like the S&P 500 where you buy the entire S&P 500 um, and you just sit back passively and let that be your portfolio. Um, this talk is not designed to be financial advice. I'm not here to give financial advice. Um, the reason I got involved in this initiative was because of the math. I like the math. And when you run the math of very small fractional numbers over very long periods of time, it turns out to matter a lot. Um, so that's what I'm going to open up talking about. And again, I'm not giving financial advice. What I'm doing here and now is discussing the reason I was interested in going to the Vanguard Equity Index relative to other indexes that we could have done, um, and then what the long-term effects of that are, uh, which is basically just that, that small fractional math happening over long periods of time. And then um, I, I'm not going to debate active versus passive management. Uh, there are people who believe your, your account should always be actively managed. There are a bunch of people who believe accounts should be passively managed. Um, one of my favorite people to quote on that subject is uh, Warren Buffett, who owns Berkshire Hathaway, and I'll be happy to bring up some of his thoughts on this, um, and I will quote his thoughts if you're interested in hearing what he has to say. Um, but I thought what I'd start with is the basics of why I cared so much. So the equity index that we had in our accounts before Vanguard funds were opened was an S&P 500 index uh, held by TIA-CREF 
and they had an expense ratio of 0.34. Um, so that was 0.34% per year was taken out of your account. So however much you had in, 0.34 per year was taken out in order to manage that account. Um, and one of the nice things about a passive investment strategy is that there's not a lot of management because you, you're buying an entire index or buying an entire group and you, it's supposed to be relatively passive. Um, and when you compare that to something like Vanguard, so the Vanguard funds we now have have an expense ratio of 0.04, right? So again, we're dealing with very small fractions here of 0.04 to 0.34 in the expense ratio. Um, but when I do the math on this, it is astonishing how much that little fractional amount matters over time. Uh, for instance, and I have an Excel spreadsheet up here, which I think some of you can see uh, in the room. Oops, not that far. Um, I, uh, that we can see here in the room. Um, I'll, I'll describe what I'm doing here. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm setting up a world where somebody comes to the university, um, and they're, they're starting at $50,000 a year. Um, so let's say they come at 30 years old, um, and if they came at 30 years old, the university requires us to put 12% of our income away, right? 80% of that comes from the university, 4% comes out of our paycheck. So 12% of our salary goes into a fund. So in that first year of $50,000 pay, you're putting $6,000, that's 12% of your salary, into your retirement account. And when you do that, what I did up here is I said, look, well, the average stock market return over long periods of time is 10%, right? Um, and the difference between these expense ratios, again, is very small. We're talking about 0.04 to 0.34. So the expense ratio difference is 0.3. So in, in a way that we can think about that is if we keep one account, we'll get our 10% return, and the other account, we're losing 0.3% on that which again doesn't sound like a lot, but I want to show you how this magnifies over the years. So these are the two accounts. We can think of this first column, which is column C in this, as the Vanguard equity index versus the other equity index, which is 0.3 more expensive, right? Um, so we're putting $6,000 into both of those accounts. After one year, that $6,000 has grown by the average 10%. In the Vanguard account, in the, the other account, it goes up by 9.7%, representing the 0.3 expense, the extra expense you were paying in that. Um, and then again, in the second year, um, we, we pay in 12% of our salary. Um, so what I've done here with the salary estimates is I've assumed a 2% raise per year. And I know people that were here before the financial crisis say that it used to be three. I've never seen it. So I'm going to go with two. <laughs> um, that is the current norm. So you're putting in an extra 2% of your salary each year because, or 2% of the match, right? Your 12% match goes up. And you can see after the first year, the whopping difference between 0.3 expense ratio is you save an amazing $18. Everybody cheer. Yay. $18. Uh, so it's not a lot. Uh, but again, it's, it's a fractional amount, but you're paying that fractional amount every year. So the next year when you have that money in there, um, your account would grow from $6,000 to $12,700. That includes the additional money that you're putting in, the 12% of your next year's salary. 
plus the $6,000 and the 10% return you got on that first $6,000, right? And in the second year, the difference starts, the gap starts to widen a little bit to the point where in the second year you're saving about $58, in the third year you're saving $124. That's in total. So three years in this account, you are now $124 richer because you decreased your expenses by 0.3. And again, I understand everybody's going, okay, so what? But if this person came in at 30 years old and had the choice between an account that was 0.3% less and kept working until they were 70, at the time of their 70th birthday, because this 0.3 magnifies over the years, you would expect your account to have about 240,000 more dollars in it when you go to retire. And that's the huge part of it. Right? Everybody looks at the incremental one-year differences and they're like, oh, I don't care. Um, but I've been fascinated with this type of equation since high school when my calc teacher taught it to me and I etched it in my graphing calculator, which is still there. <laughs> um, and just how this magnifies over time is completely fascinating to me. And when I ran these numbers, I was shocked. I figured it would save us something like eighty or $100,000 dollars. And it turns out we're talking about extra hundreds of thousands of dollars by shaving off that 0.3 in the expense ratio. Mm -hmm. is, there's one more thing that, that I don't understand. Okay. Do we make an accurate choice between column C or D, or is this a university-wide choice that we are When you open your TIA CREF account, mm -hmm. and you look at your TIA CREF account, you get to pick which funds it goes into, mm -hmm. and those funds have different expense ratios. Okay. Um, and right now, there are actually two equity indexes in there. One is a TIA CREF fund, which is 0.34 as the expense ratio, and one is the Vanguard fund at 0.04. So you literally have the option of those two, and you get to pick which one they go in. So once you go in, so the, the, the retirement process is two-stage. One, you have the mandatory contributions. You can elect for voluntary contributions as well. That amount goes in the TIA craft, but then within TIA craft, you actually have to pick where those funds are going. Um, and you can pick from active or passive. You can pick from large stocks or small stocks or bonds or, or different parts of your portfolio. This is literally the choice of the expense ratio difference between the TIA craft equity index and the Vanguard equity index. Yeah. Um, and again, this is, so the earlier you start, the bigger the difference is. Uh, I wish we would have had this 10 years ago when I started here. <laughs> uh, the different, I mean, 10 years into it's already a big deal. Um, but every year matters on, on different amounts because even if you're later in the process, um, I assume you're going to start with an account with more than $6,000. So again, that gap matters uh, both how long you do it and how large the account is. Um, and we can do this. This actually, what I will openly state is, this is $50,000 with 2% raises per year, but I did not, and I have done this in, in some of the other versions because I have like 10 different versions of the spreadsheet on my computer, um, is done things like the school's minimum 67 for once you get associate. We'll bump this up because that's not 67, right? So, so it's actually a little bit more than this. Um, if, you, if you change it to, so my wife is, when we do retirement planning, my wife and I sit down and talk about this. 
Uh, she likes to be a little more conservative than I am in terms of the rate of return to the stock market. Historically, the average has been 10%. Some people always question whether the future should be the same thing. If you use 8%, you're still talking about a $140,000 difference between these two, right? Because then it's just not, not magnified at the same rate. It's magnified at a lower rate, but there's still a gap that's growing over time. Um, and so the, the difference between this is huge. Um, I, I mean, that, by making this switch, we've made it possible for people to have an extra $200,000 in retirement just by doing that one thing, which is, to me, amazingly huge and amazingly powerful. And well, so I have a few questions because I'm please do. not nearly as far from retirement as you are, so <laughs> I don't think. Um, <laughs> so I'm not, I, I mean, I, I can see what you're saying. Even yep. frankly, I mean, you know, I'm enough of a, I was actually born during the Depression, but my former colleagues did something I was a depression baby because they had no money growing up. So yeah. I had to say, anyway, you know, saving $150 to me would still be terrific. You know, why should I give 150 to somebody when it could be in my pocket? Agreed. But is it, I mean, if you're only, say, say if you're 10, 15 years from retirement, I guess it still makes sense to make this, this shift because um, I'm looking down the line there. Where, so where's 10? Yeah. yeah it's so ten, tens of thousand, but I, I will make an assumption that you have slightly more in your starting account than zero. Yes. So you're not just putting <laughs> 60 in. Yes, right. I mean, so, so what we can do for your statement, so 10 years out, let's highlight that row. Right. When we highlight 10 years out and we say you're starting with something like $150,000. Mm -hmm. Right. Now we can see that you're still $12,000 more in retirement. Right. Right. By doing so, yeah. right. So again, 150 is 150, yeah, yeah, but that's twelve thousand dollars is yeah. is a, an extra year worth of fun. Sure. <laughs> so what about? Um, yeah. So, but one of the things that is it Frank from the committee yeah. 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 Frank was saying that, for example, this he was asking about getting a a different kind of yeah, bond. The, yes. Yes. Because right now, making the the switch, it might not be such a good idea, or is it? I don't know. So, so what, what Frank has brought up, which is an important point, is that we now have what, what the industry would define as low ultra-low cost index fund options for our stocks, for our equity portfolio. Um, but as people near retirement, people tend to put more in bonds or people try to balance their portfolio by putting them in stocks and bonds. And by putting them in both stocks and bonds, right now we have a TIA craft bond choice we don't have an ultra low cost index bond choice. Right. Um, so that is the next thing that's going to be brought up is that we, uh, I will be communicating with the same people I talked to before, uh, first thanking them for making this move because I think it's made a lot of us better off mm -hmm. uh, by having this option available. But then on top of that, uh, requesting at least them explore the possibility of adding an ultra low cost bond fund also so that as you move into bonds, or if you invest more in bonds than stocks, you can also take advantage of the, the cost difference between these things. So what does, what does a 0.34%, am I getting that right? Yep. The current, that's the current, that's the current expense ratio. Okay. Yep. How much are we talking about? So 0.34 percent. Yeah. So if you had a hundred thousand dollars in an account, right? Um, 
let me change this into money. If you had $100,000 in an account, um, times 0.0034, which is 0.34%, um, equals times 0.034, apparently it's not, that's not right. Um, this is equal to that times 0.0034. You are spending, so 0.34 means for every $100,000, you are paying somebody $340 to manage your account mm -hmm. each year, mm -hmm. right? So remember that this is paid on an annual basis. Right. So each year you're paying out $340. And again, this is one of those things where you say, it's $100,000 in money. $340 to have somebody manage $100,000 in money to invest for me does not sound like a lot, and I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. It's not the one-year cost that right. matters. It's this over time because it's the extra $300 per year every year, yeah. and not only that, but they're taking the $300 out each year, which means that's $300 less you're investing each year. So what we saw, the compounding mm -hmm. of this over time is where it magnifies into numbers. And that's why I said before, um, when I looked at these numbers, I was expecting to see like eighty dollars or $100,000 benefit. So when I saw what was literally a quarter of a million dollar difference, that was huge, right? And that's a quarter of a million dollars per person for every person that goes to retire is going to have an extra quarter million dollars in their, their accounts. Like I, I, I would like to think that this policy change has helped a lot of people in life. It makes me feel good. I have another question. Yep. I why, why not just, I'm probably not paying more than that. I, <laughs> I just got my TIA, well, I had to do my taxes. Okay. And so, yes. So, <laughs> Always a fun Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I was kind of shocked by how much. Uh, it is managed account. I, I am using TIAA. Okay. So, you're using, you're using a TIAA craft account outside of your Seton Hall. No, no, it's all Seton Hall. Oh, in Seton Hall, okay. Yeah, no, but. I'm close to retirement. Okay, yep. just retired, actually. Okay, great. So, okay. well, of course, retirement, but that's right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I was kind of shocked by how much it's the annual expenses were for this. Yep. And on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, and it is managed. On the other hand, why couldn't I just pay that outright instead of having that coming out of my funds so that that amount was being reduced? Right? Like, can't I just pay them? So, if I wrote them a check, it wouldn't have the same impact on my investment because the investment is now coming down, right? So, implicitly, you have the ability to do that yeah. if you're not maxing out your voluntary contribution. Gotcha. Okay. So, what you could do is calculate the amount that you're paying them in fees and saying, look, I would rather that money stay in my account. Right. So, what you could do is increase your voluntary contributions mm -hmm. to the amount. Or, or kind of an estimate of what you're paying, right. and essentially then, when as they're pulling out the expense ratios, right. you're putting extra into the account to make up for that. Gotcha. So, so it is possible for you to do. Right. There are maximum contribution limits. Uh, right now, it's eighteen thousand five hundred dollars per year per right. person. Um, if you're, I think above fifty-five, it goes up to twenty-four thousand or something close to that. You have to check that number right. because yeah. I, I have not looked at that one. Yeah. Um, so the 24 is the max, but what's beautiful about our structure at Seton Hall, which is not true everywhere, is that the 12% that we put in is required, and because it's required, it doesn't count against 
to 24 or 18.5. In most situations when you put it in, it automatically starts counting towards that 18.5. But because we're required, we can put in the 12% plus 18.5. And there is some overall max cap, um, but I calculated it once and you'd have to be making something like 240 a year to do, hit the max. So, um, I, which might be you. I, I know you're involved on campus, yeah, so maybe you're making that much, but I haven't seen you on the 990 yet. So, <laughs> maybe. So again, I have different types of mathematical models. Um, I, I can go through this different ways, but I think the best part now is what, what do you want to know? What kind of questions do you guys have? Uh, for how this goes because again the, the part that I think is shocking to most people is just purely the, the, the magnitude of this over time. Um, I, have a, I have another example set up right here. If somebody started at 70,000 we're getting 2% raises per year uh, consistently throughout and if they started at uh, 30 by the time they hit 70 um, they're talking about a $350,000 difference. Right. So, um, and then if you kept that in your account until 75, uh, again, th those last years, because the account's so big that it's magnifying by that much more, it's, uh, it has huge implications, huge implications. Right. Um, Can I ask something? Well, without giving us financial advice. I would never. Okay. Do you have a sense of, of how a person might configure a portfolio like in terms of percentages. Are there basic formulae that... Yeah, so there are, there are rules of thumb. Yeah. Um, I will give you the rules of thumb that I read in the literature and yeah. you can interpret those, yeah. right? So this is, again, not financial advice. This is my, as a person who does finance, this is my reading of the literature. Yeah. Um, one main... So I'll go back. I mentioned Warren Buffett earlier. Um, and Warren Buffett says that the optimal strategy for 99% of investors, um, and he means 99% of the world that's not in the, the in the finance world themselves, 99% of the world is finding ultra low cost index funds, um, which is what this push was for, was to get us yeah. access to ultra low cost index funds. Now, the other thing that people will say as a rule of thumb is they'll say, as you get closer to retirement, you should shift away from equities, which are a little more risky stocks towards bonds which tend to be less risky. And they have what they call glide paths, which is how it glides from your stocks to your, st your stock bond mix and how that glides down, um, which is less equities over time and more bonds over time. Um, Jack Bogle, who is uh, the founder of Vanguard actually, uh, uses a rule of thumb strategy that says 120 minus your age is how much you should have in stocks. Um, some people will say 100 minus your age, um, but as we've started to live longer, the, the rule seems to have shifted to 120 minus your age. Right? So if you're looking at stocks to bonds, the percentage of your portfolio in the stocks would be approximately 120 minus your age. Right? So I am about 40, so 120 minus my age says that I should have 80% of my portfolio in stocks. Right, so 120 minus the 40 gives me 80, 80 percent in stocks, and then as I, as I continue to age, that with that portfolio can shift. Now, one of the other things, equity funds. yes, equity funds. So equities are our stock funds. Um, 
And another way that you can look at that, we do have access to what they call target retirement date funds. And the target retirement date funds are designed to do exactly that, which is you pick your target retirement date, you start off with more equities, more stocks, and slowly get more bonds till you hit that date, and so they're targeting on when you hope to retire. Um, and that is a great use for a lot of people who are in passive investing. Unfortunately, there are also ultra-low cost target retirement date funds, which we do not have in our portfolio choice. Um, you could use the TIA funds uh, if you would like. But if you looked at those TIA funds over time, it'll show you what their view of the glide path is because we have access to retire now, five years from now, 10, 15, 20, 30, and each of them show you what the split between stocks and bonds are for that. Um, and that will show you literally what this glide path is in TIA Crest view. Um, because that, that would be TIA Crest's stance on how you should change your equity to bond portfolio as you near retirement. Do you happen to know if their stance is this one twenty minus age? I don't. I'm willing to do a Curious. quick look. Depending on how quick I can get back on the internet. And then well, there are other options, right? So it's not just stocks and bonds, there's also real estate. So there is real estate. Um, and there's more. There is money market funds, okay. which are cash accounts. Um, so typically when you get closer to retirement, um, there's guaranteed return accounts, which are kind of a, a, a money market, but you're locked in for a long period of time. Um, and then there are the money market, which are cash accounts. People typically use the cash accounts when they get nearing to the point where they're going to start pulling out of retirement because that way if the bond market does weird stuff or the stock market does weird stuff, you have cash basically sitting in a bank account within TIA Craft that you can draw from without forcing you to get out of equities or bonds if things are going weird uh, in that world at that point in time. And what I'm doing is I'm logging on to my, my TIA CREF account and I'm going to look at the perspectives for the different uh, options we have within the glide path. So they're saying if you are planning to retire in 2015, the portfolio within TIA CREF says fixed income is at 40%. So if you're retired now and 120 minus 70 would be 50%. So they're, they're, they're close, right? So that's the uh, 20 2030. So if you're retiring in 2030 at 70, you would be 60, 58 right now. Is that right? So 120 minus 58 would give you an equity portfolio of about 60%. And their portfolio shows equities um, 
actually it's 70%. So they have 50% U.S. equities but 20% international equity. I didn't, I didn't notice that they had that separated, so it's higher on the other one as well. Um, so they are slightly more in equities than the 120 minus, minus your age rule um, for those two, which is, I assume, consistent throughout. Right? So again, this is me looking at the TIACraft portfolio and them showing it. And where does real estate come in? I'm sorry. So I, I have no statement on real estate. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, there, are, there are people that say, for the general populace, um, so this is, this is again, I'm going to make this very clear that this is a, a personal reading and a personal understanding of, of the economics literature on this. Um, the general populace's primary wealth when they hit retirement is their house, yeah. which means most of their money is already tied up in real estate. Given that most of their money is tied up in their personal real estate, I can't imagine most people would say get more real estate. They may or may not, okay. but I can't imagine that would be the advice. The advice for most people is that once you've crossed a certain wealth threshold, you then go outside of stocks and bonds and add what they call alternative assets as an additional class. And in alternative assets, then you have things like real estate, artwork, second homes, like gold, silver, right? You can actually buy commodities um, and things like that. Um, I, I have no statement on what the right balance of real estate is or how that would work into your portfolio. I will admit I do have some. I, I do have part of the real estate uh, equity offering in mine, and it is a very small fraction of my overall portfolio. Right? Certainly less than 10% and probably even less than that. Uh, so I do have a little bit, but again, I have a house. And in this region, I have a house that's relatively expensive. And, and part of the idea of stocks and bonds is you're diversifying your portfolio. And again, from the economics literature, what we see is that most people entering retirement, their primary, their, 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 their largest asset is their house that they currently live in, um, which means they have a ton of money already in real estate, if you think about it like that. Um, scarily only in one house, which is, you know, uh, the idea of real estate portfolio is that it at least gives you different real estate. So if anything happens locally, you would still be protected. Um, but you're not protected if you if you have only your own house, which a lot of us saw 10 years ago. Scary. So the Karen, there's also a category of guaranteed. So guaranteed. Yeah. Um, so guaranteed is a mix. The the guaranteed, which we have the option of TIA traditional. Um, I would say that that is somewhere between bonds and money market. Right. Money market is like a bank account. Right, where you have free access to cash and a relatively low return. Bonds are actually investing in bonds, which is loans from major companies in the government. Right, you're making them loans. Uh, the TIA traditional is you're putting cash in. You're getting a higher rate than you would get in a bank. Uh, but there are also a lot of restrictions on how you can pull that money out. Um, so I've read a lot about that uh, because it's in our portfolio, um, and I do have a little bit of money in that, uh, even smaller than my real estate. Um, but it's a high rate of return, but there are rules, and we need to check the details of this, but something like when you start to pull it out, you have to pull it out at equal lots over a 10-year period, 
right? So you don't have access to that money in a short term. There are a lot of restrictions on when you have access to the money and TIACRAF's argument with that is, but these restrictions are what allow us to give you the higher return, right? So you have to debate whether the restrictions on the access to the money are worth the return gains you get from having that account relative to either bonds, uh, cash, or, or something else. One argument I, I could imagine would be in your favor for the Vanguard uh, bonds, index bonds, or mm -hmm. the bond products, is that they always they have a yield and they're constantly kicking out a dividend right. monthly. And what I was seeing on the Crest Bond Fund, you know, they absorb the uh, the bond yield within the account. within the account. Uh, well, you don't see uh, you know a distribution from a bond fund from CREF. Uh, but, in, but in theory, if they're building it into the account, then your account value should go up by what the distribution would be. Right. And given that this is uh, a tax advantage plan, which is you put money in pre-tax and you're not taxed until you take it out anyway, um, the, the way the distributions occur in theory are irrelevant. Um, that is, if they, if they build the fund up $100, or gave you a $100 check, which went back into the fund automatically because it's a retirement account. Either way, it went up by $100. Um, it could be harder to compare them over time because the way they're calling dividends versus actual just returns on the account um, might make it harder to compare over time, which I think is interesting that I might look at. But from that perspective, if it was not a tax advantage account, you would care because it, you, they would be taxed in different ways. But given that this is a 403B and the taxes only come at the very end, um, it's, it's fundamentally irrelevant on which way to distribute the money, whether it's built back into the account or they give it as dividends. Um, but again, outside of that account, you would care because um, those have major tax implications on whether they call it a distribution or not. Right. Um, and a lot of people simply earn income off of, you know, if they're retired yeah. and they have a, you know, a, a big allocation in the bonds, mm -hmm. they can live off the income and keep and, the and principal. Keep, keep the principles And yeah. keep the principal in the account. And, right. and in theory, you can still do that because if they're building it in it's and you're just pulling it out, then you're pulling it out to the rate that it's going up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, the way the 403B tax structure is set up, um, I don't think that that would matter too much in your world, other than the peace of mind of actually seeing the check, the dividends come in, right? That does give you some peace of mind, right? And, and again, in a taxable account, that, that the taxes are handled differently, so it's, it's important to note that difference. Um, but the way that this is set up with all the taxes on the end, um, the distribution of the, the, the yield would be fundamentally irrelevant. What was the Warren Buffett advice you're going to do about? The Warren Buffett, so that's where, that's where I said he, Warren Buffett says that 99% of the investors should be investing in ultra low cost index funds. Oh, that, that is, okay. he's saying 99% of investors should be in passive funds, not active funds. Okay. Now, one of the things that I didn't go into detail about, and, and I, I'm not, I mean, it's just a debate, right, is right. should you be in passive or active funds? TIA mm -hmm. Craft also offers active funds the active funds do have higher expense ratios. Those higher expense ratios are going, going to pay people to manage the account for you. And so they're buying and selling stocks that they think are going to, they're selling the ones they think are bad. They're buying the ones they think are going to go up in value. And the hope is then that they will do better than the market. So when you buy a passive index fund and you get the market return, if the active fund is beating that, 
then you would have been better off buying the active fund. Um, Warren Buffett also, uh, about 10 years ago, made a big bet because the most active funds in the world are called hedge funds. Um, and hedge funds, you have to have more than a million dollars in assets just to enter, right? So you have to be right. a, what's called an accredited investor. Um, and he made a bet against the hedge fund industry and said, I bet a million dollars that a passive fund would be the hedge fund portfolio over the next 10 years. And somebody stood, stood up and took the bet. They picked five hedge funds as a, a, a portfolio of hedge funds. He picked the S&P 500 and said, 10 years from now, we'll see which account would have more money in it. Um, and they both put money into it. The bet was a million dollars. I think they both put half a million into something else so that it would grow. And then they donated it to whoever won, got to donate it to their cause. Um, and Warren Buffett won by a landslide. Mm -hmm. Land, like it wasn't barely. He won by a landslide. And of course, people who are friend, fans of active funds say, oh, that was an anomaly. You didn't pick the right funds. If you would have picked the right funds. Um, but again, I'll go back to the literature on this one. And the literature fundamentally says that actively managed funds, 80% of them do worse than a passive index fund. And again, if you happen to pick the ones that work, it could do you very well in life. Um, but the odds do not seem in your favor uh, according to the, the historical results. Um, but again, I, I have people that think that that is the way they want to go in life. They want active managed funds. They love thinking about the fact that they can beat the market and it makes them feel good. Go to town, right? Um, I, it, the, this conversation was about pa passive funds expense ratios and how that small fraction on a passive fund expense ratio magnifies into something big over periods of time uh, or, or larger portfolios, and especially because it's larger portfolios later in time. Right? So uh, the two of them magnified together have the potential to be massive in terms of, again, what we're talking about is the accumulated additional wealth that would be sitting in that retirement account just by changing your expense ratio by that much on the passive one. Make that clear. I'm not yeah. getting into the debate of passive versus active. I've given you some bullet points for that. Right. Um, yeah. But that is your decision on passive active or yours and your financial advisors. I had a question about yeah. the, the REIT funds or real the, fund. yeah, the real estate um, funds of TIACREF versus um, like the passive real estate, the, you know, a true REIT fund like the Vanguard. It seemed to me that I read that the TIACREF, that they actually own this real estate. Yes. So, so, so one of the arguments for the real estate fund in TIACREF relative to going to an ultra low cost real, REIT, which is a real estate investment trust, I think is what it's for, is that uh, TIACREF, uh, according to my understanding, owns the physical real estate and actually runs their own portfolio. So you're buying into a portfolio that doesn't exist on an indexed world. Um, and because of that, um, I have heard some people say that that is a reason that it is worth it relative to just getting a real estate, low cost real estate investment index. Is there any historical data of, of that TIACREF fund or how it's performed over the last 23 years. We can look that up. So if you go in Google Finance, we can put in 
Um, So within Market Watch, we can see that over a what do you want? So all data, ten years, I guess, or twenty. So when I do all data, it only gives me back to January of 2014. I don't know why that is, but in 2014, oh my God, this is showing me the graph. Um, let me try to work somewhere else and see if I can get access to it. No, I couldn't find very much historical data on that. Yeah. And I wonder if part of that's hard because it is TIA Crest Fund and not. So here's one that gives five years. That'll give a comparison over a fixed period of time. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't find one quickly. Um, so I, I cannot find one quickly. I apologize. Okay. And, and part of that, probably the historical data should be out there. But part of comparing it's hard just because it's a TI craft specific fund relative to other things. And I don't have again a quick answer. But I do know that fundamentally they run that fund by owning the actual. That's what I've heard and I've read, that they own the actual real estate rather than investing in companies that own the real estate, uh, which is fundamentally different right. investment strategy. Right. Um, so the one thing I find a little bit frustrating is that um, HR has not tried to do, and has not done a session, or TIA, TIA hasn't offered a session on this, which I imagine why they're not offering a session, frankly, because necessarily in their best interest to do that. But yeah. um, so what I would like to do is maybe write back to Terry in HR and see if we can maybe do something. I just feel like faculty don't realize, especially younger faculty or, or middle of the road faculty, you know, what kind of, uh, I frankly, even senior faculty, you know, 10 years can obviously, you know, I'd rather have the thousand dollars whatever it is myself and then somebody else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess the one thing is, yes, to sort of make it clear that there, there is this um, you know, podcast to be available, but I'd like to try to do something, and maybe she can lend us something for the fall to bring in TIAA. But I think also there should be, um, maybe there's some materials we could put somewhere online or something. I mean, HR should be doing this, right? Okay, so, so again, why, why, the reason I'm passionate about this is because it's so... The, the changes are so small if you just look at a one-year thing right. that you have to look at it over a longer period of time right. for it to be uh, have a major influence. And if you have that kind of time over a longer period of time, this is huge, right? right? So start early. Yeah. <laughs> start early, start off, and get in there as much as you can. But yeah, um, the, the TIA Crest role at the university, and this is one of the things I learned very clearly during the process of trying to ask for these funds, is that they fundamentally run two things. One is they manage the accounts 
for us that have our portfolio options. But another is they give advice of how to invest and what to invest. Um, and if a TIA craft person was here, would they, I certainly think that they would give you the right portfolio mixes, right? You were talking about what is the rule of thumb over time and things like that. Um, would they have the incentive to push their own products over Vanguard? It seemed that way, but I don't know what the answer would be. I don't. I haven't talked to TIA Craft enough. I've, I've listened to quite a few of their webinars. They run webinars on things like last week. I did one on tax policy and how the tax policy changes our investment strategies. Um, and they are very good webinars that give a lot of useful information. Um, that you know, hopefully this session gave a useful information as well. Um, but I, it would be great. I don't know if TIA Craft is going to push for the Vanguard funds, um, and, and they may or may not, and that's up to them and whether they do or not. What I want to do is point out, again, how these, these small incremental differences that look so tiny have huge influences over time and huge impacts over time because that's the part that's hard to see as you kind of go, oh, look, it's $300 in one year. What's $300? I, I like $300. I would take $300, but I'm also not going to waste a week and a half trying to figure it out for $300. But I certainly would waste a week and a half to figure out $250,000 in my portfolio later on. Um, and, and that's the big difference that I think people need to, to realize. And, and, and again, um, I I'm here, I'm a professor here, as far as I know, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I'm certainly open to having these conversations with anybody who listens to the podcast that couldn't make it today, um, anybody that's here. I know you're here for your wife. I've already emailed her and said that she can come ask me questions afterwards as well. Um, I, 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 this is the stuff I'm passionate about just because it has such a huge impact on you later in life. Um, and I give, uh, not on small incremental changes, but how to do that math for that first year and how big it is over time. I teach it in almost every class that I offer because it, I just think it's that powerful. Mm. I mean, and so, of course, earlier, not this year, I'm thinking last year, this year, our academic year. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess back in the fall, that story broke about the whole issue of TIA and the extent to which they are, in fact, or not, a fiduciary, which they were claimed to be. In fact, when my husband and I met with the financial advisor, uh, because what, you know, his stuff had to be rolled somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so we had actually met with somebody from a different company first, yep. way back trying to figure out what would make more sense. They were very expensive. Okay. Um, the percentage that they were asking was crazy. Anyway, so, but we learned how to ask what some of these Are you a fiduciary? And, so, and they said yes. They did say yes. They did say yes. I, I, am, I am happy to hear that. Um, we have a, a committee on campus that's in charge of our retirement investments. Uh -huh. They are fiduciaries. Mm -hmm. They are clearly fiduciaries. They have to take statements, oaths that they are fiduciaries. Mm -hmm. um, the, the question that you've read in the news is that when TIA Craft comes to campus mm -hmm. to give financial advice, right. so if they did something like this, are they fiduciaries? And what they've found in these news stories is that they are not, when they come to campus, they are investment advisors, but they are not fiduciaries. And to my knowledge, they have not been willing to sign fiduciary statements when they make those meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that both for myself, my wife is involved in a committee like that at a different university. Um, and we have asked that question many times. I am 
ecstatic that they said they were fiduciaries to you. Mm -hmm. I hope you have that in writing. But the news that has been coming yeah. up is because they were perceived as fiduciaries but right. not acting as fiduciaries. Right. And it was the gap in the perception versus the actual that was getting the news press of if you're perceiving yourself as a fiduciary, should, do, are you a fiduciary? And they said, well, we're not. Mm -hmm. um, and we haven't stayed at, taken any fiduciary. Because the, again, the committee on campus, which involves uh, administrators and, and there is a wow. faculty representative, um, is a fiduciary in picking the funds. But if someone comes to campus, again, to my knowledge, right. they are not a fiduciary. They are giving you advice as a financial advisor. Um, but not necessarily a fiduciary, under a fiduciary role, which means they have to do, and for those people listening that don't understand the difference, fiduciary means they have to actually act in your best interest. They have to get you the best products. As opposed to an investment advisory role that is a non-fiduciary, they have to do what's called suitable. They just have to put you in something that is suitable for you. It doesn't have to be the best right. for you. Um, and that means things when there are options that have lower expense ratios. If both of them are suitable, a fiduciary can put you in either one. And the, the question then in the world is, well, if they make financial money, more financial money, you kick back off of one of those funds relative to the other, are they likely to put you in that one instead of what's best? Whereas a fiduciary has to actually put what you what's in best for you and cannot take into account the fact that they might get a commission off of selling certain things. Interesting. I will go back and look. We did specifically ask teachers. That's great. So it was not here on campus. Okay. So we went to the TIA offices. Great. And, and we have the right to do that right. as faculty. Right. TIA Craft both come to campus mm -hmm. and you can set up meetings with them. Um, I have talked to TIA mm -hmm. reps. Um, they have been very friendly and very helpful, um, but that is an important question when you're dealing with anybody giving you financial advice is, are you a fiduciary or not? Right. Um, and, and that is the, the news stories that you brought up that were right. coming up earlier this academic year uh, were about the question of fiduciary because TIACREF was a nonprofit. They're not a nonprofit right. anymore, but they say that they still act as a nonprofit, which is great. Um, but then the question of, when they give you personal advice, are they acting in that fiduciary role is, is an important question that is currently unanswered as far yeah, as I can right. tell. Yeah, no, that's true. So, um, I think we're basically out of time, but that going really fast. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. And this will be posted on the Family Development website um, probably by next week. Yeah. Um, so this is more associated with the GA Family Development, so it's still posted. And um, so tell people, and you know, go back and listen again, and so on. But um, I noticed that uh, Terry Demarest, 